from the Inspiration offices in Washington, D.C., which is actually my home office in Washington, D.C. at the moment. This is Everything About Hydrogen. I am Andrew Leadham, Associate Director here at Inspiratia, and I am joined by my incomparable co-host, Patrick Malloy of the Rocky Mountain Institute, just down the road from me in Washington, and Chris Jackson at Proteum over in London. Today's episode is a little different from others in that we will just be covering current topics in the hydrogen world and answering some listener questions amongst the three of us without a special guest today. We hope you enjoy, and with that, let's get started. All right, guys. So this is the famous 19th episode in the podcast. So it's just going to be the three of us hanging out, talking all things hydrogen. Uh, But first, how are you guys doing? Patrick, let's start with you. Doing well, Andrew. Yeah. As, as, as I observe you drinking a glass of wine, so I hope you're I hope you're doing all right. You two can see each other from each other's balconies at this point. I mean, it's ridiculous. You might as well be having <laughs> Chris told me to bring alcohol to this one, so, you know, this is what I had at home. <laughs> How are things on your side of D.C., Patrick? Yeah, they're good. They're good. It's uh, a beautiful, wet, gray day mirroring, uh, well, hopefully not mirroring, uh, mirroring uh, London weather. I don't know. I've heard it's quite nice in London these days. Yeah, London's lovely right now. Somehow, um, from somewhere, it has been deigned that England is going to buck the conventional trend of raining the whole time. And instead, we've just had glorious sunshine, which, I mean, is kind of strange as well, because you've got less cars on the road. So everyone's kind of enjoying, you know, beautiful, relatively quiet neighborhoods and really nice weather. Uh, Actually, I mean, you know, hard to see how it's going to be anyone wanting to get back in a car at the end of this, or at least on the public transport side. I think it's going to be a hard sell to get people to go back in a in the tube or metro for our non non british acquainted uh, listeners yeah and are you guys uh, are you guys opening up your your restaurants and things yet or is that still not on the schedule just yet no nah, we're not i don't think we're there yet um i think uh there's some places that are doing outdoor cafes and things but i don't think we're really kind of at the point where it's kind of uh, more widespread so to say um you know, I don't know. We will, we will kind of see. I mean, the truck driving stuff and and all the kind of a lot of those sort of jobs are fairly active. I mean, it was is actually kind of strange to think about it. There was someone was showing me the statistics for UK people that are unemployed or furloughed. So I think the numbers are something like four million unemployed and seven and a half million on furlough. So what's that? Eleven and a half million. But you know, I think before the crisis, about thirty six million people in the UK were employed. So I was kind of looking at that, going, actually, that's kind of insane. There's still twenty five, twenty four and a half million people still working. You know, because I think that's the thing we forget is like economies are enormous, right? So whenever we look at these things and we've just closed a funding round of Proteum and people were saying, what's the effect of COVID? What's it, what's it doing? You know, and you do have to keep reminding people, you know, even during enormous crises, the world and the economy does kind of keep going. There's still a huge amount of people working. And there's still a huge amount of the economy that's just kind of functioning. And, you know, it's obviously hugely disruptive for people, but actually it is uh, remarkable how much is going on. And, Certainly, as we all know, on the hydrogen side, absolutely nothing has slowed down whatsoever. Um, I was looking at share prices the other day for a bit of fun because you were telling me about uh, about the Nikola Vitek um, uh, Jew listing, Andrew. So I was kind of going <laughs> yeah. back and looking at some uh, some shares. And uh, yeah, I mean, if you bought ITM Power shares, I think it was like July, and you were holding them today, you've made 10x. Companies now officially cleared the £1 billion mark, which is just completely crazy to think about how rapidly 
these listed companies in the hydrogen space have shot up, not to mention all these new uh, companies like Heisen Motors, or we talked about in the last show, the joint venture announcement between Daimler and um, so Volvo, wasn't it? Is that right, Daimler and Volvo, or was that someone else? I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think, Chris, you've, you've laid the groundwork nicely and uh, kind of jumped ahead a few steps, but that's okay. Uh, because what we wanted to talk about is, uh, you know, what's going on in the news these days. Congratulations, by the way, to Proteum on closing their funding round. That is exciting. So that's news for sure. Uh, but I wanted to get your guys' thoughts on what the biggest, uh, what the biggest headlines in the hydrogen world are these days. Patrick, what do you think? I don't know. I, I think, I think. Yeah, what's caught what's caught your attention, Patrick? I mean, this is you know we're just hanging out. We're just friends here, Patrick. What is what are you reading these days? Always be worried about a man who says we're we're all friends here, right? Well, well, some more than others. No, like I, I think I think we've seen we've seen quite a few announcements of of different kind of initiatives and and kind of associations and whatnot. You know, recently I'm, I'm going to forget the. Get, or get the name slightly off, but uh, I think it's Electrocat. You know, like there's a DOE uh, electrocatalytic uh, kind of consortium kind of that's come together. I think reasonably recently. You know, the, there's just there's an awful lot, and and I'll let Chris speak to specific projects that might be going on in in Europe. But but we've seen an awful lot of uh, more meaty kind of roadmaps or kind of uh, planned kind of engagements over the last little while. So. Yeah, it's been a busy time. There's been no shortage of headlines. Um, Beyond the obviously big headline, which is the Proteum fundraise, which I'm shamelessly plugging. Um, <laughs> that's the one. That's the one. The New York, the New York Times ran full front page on that. Yeah, one. Yeah, right? I mean, I'm surprised you didn't really read it, but I mean, you know, it just goes to show, you know. Um, anyway, no. Beyond well, there's uh, so much Proteum news that I, I can't get through all of it. Chris. <laughs> I know, right, I know. Um, so, so beyond that, uh, what's interesting? I, I think probably the big news in Europe is all focused around the Green New Deal. Um, you know, I think there's a huge amount of interest around what level of support will be finally agreed, uh, presuming, of course, the package actually goes ahead, which, you know, is never a guarantee. Nothing in Europe is ever guaranteed uh, until the very final minute, and even then sometimes after that. So, uh, but provisional numbers are saying that you could be looking at up to 100 billion euros worth of financing between... 2021 and 2027, which is a fairly game-changing sum for the hydrogen sector in Europe. Um, and obviously, that would be dispensed in a number of different ways, R&D, innovation, uh, infrastructure, uh, all sorts of things. So, But it is it is a really serious amount of money. So in Europe, there's a lot of interest around that and how that will play out and uh, how that will be allocated. So that's sort of a big news story. Um, Australia, uh, to be honest, continues to be a real hotspot for activity. Um, there's a developer called Infinite Blue Energy that's been making a lot of waves. Uh, they announced it recently, uh, I think it was an Australian $2.3 billion project that they've been developing, another one gigawatt uh, electrolysis project in the west of the country. Uh, and I think you know there just continues to be a lot of activity at the moment generally around uh, green hydrogen in Australia, just given the phenomenal renewable resources there. And actually, unfortunately, a few stories around um, hydrogen from coal uh, and uh, that then through carbon capture be exported to Japan. I heard about that, Chris. I was going to ask both of you guys about that. Uh, one of our analysts in, in London at Inspiratia mentioned that to me actually earlier this morning. I was wondering if you guys could uh, tell me a bit. I haven't read up on it. Uh, but I'd be curious to hear about that initiative. Why is it that the uh, Australian government is backing a, a brown hydrogen project? Well, it's a little bit of a fudge because it's it's sort of a hybrid Australian-Japanese um, initiative, right? And I, th- I think the mm. 
Mm-hmm. So the the uh, from what is being made clear, and I have to emphasize that there are certain bits of this that are not one hundred percent clear. But from what is clear, the argument goes that no hydrogen will be exported unless all the carbon can be captured, which is somewhat dubious at best. Because as Patrick will, I'm sure, explain better than I can, um, carbon capture in terms of its efficiency, and certainly in terms of 100% carbon capture, uh, is still having a number of fairly significant challenges. But ostensibly, the idea is we have this enormous energy resource, which is coal in, uh, I think it's in the north of Australia, but if we've got any Australian listeners who correct me, then apologies. Uh, but it's enormous coal reserve. And effectively, the argument goes, look, we can convert this into hydrogen and export it to Japan, and we can do that at a phenomenally low rate. And much like the discussion that we've had uh, on the call with on the discussion with the Hydrogen Council around, is it sort of blue now, green later? There's a bit of a view in Japan of we just need large predictable amounts of low carbon hydrogen today to start facilitating the transition, and then over time it can become more green. And so that's the that's the kind of broad high level justification. Um, obviously, it's a huge lifeline if it works and is seen to be effective for parts of the coal industry. Uh, which is the same reason why so many people are very concerned about it. But 100% carbon capture, to my mind, there isn't any proven site in the world that is 100% carbon capture. Although, Patrick, I'm sure you'll tell me if I'm wrong on that. Not that I know of. We really need Lee Beck, a friend of ours from the Global CCS Institute, to weigh in on this. Yeah, we should get her on. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, Andrew, go back to the the, the original question. Why, why is this you know, kind of being even kind of considered and, and Chris is entirely right. You know, Australia has huge, huge coal reserves, has a huge export market. Um, I think they're, they're, they're around 30% of, uh, of, of global exports. I think something, something absolutely enormous anyway. Of coal exports, sorry. I think, yeah, I'll have to check that. But um, yeah, they're a substantial coal exporter already. There is already a substantial market in, you know, exporting to Japan and and kind of uh, Southeast Asia. Um, And, you know, I I suppose when you have a resource, the temptation is to continue to use it, right? Um, The the suggestion that that they're going to get 100% uh, carbon capture is... um, I'd look forward to seeing the technology that allows them to do that. I'll say it in that phrase or in that way. There's an awful lot of interest around uh, pyrolysis technologies, um, so that you kind of um, kind of uh, crystallize, create carbon carbon black, um, and and you know separate the hydrogen that way. But but you know a lot of this stuff isn't isn't particularly well developed. Carbon capture technology is still, you know, it has some projects that are, are capturing reasonable amounts of, of carbon but but you know scaling it and capturing it at 100 percent i don't think i don't think i've seen those sort of numbers and even for auto thermal reforming you know we talk about 90 plus percent right so you know this is this is one of those things that as chris says it maybe it's a little bit of the the blue now to green later but i suspect it's it's kind of one of those products that that occurs when you have pre-existing markets and you're looking for ways to to not strand strand assets in industry. You know, for for folks generally listening and and just maybe interested, you know, when we talk about the the difference between, for instance, um, steam reforming or, or uh, methane reforming in general versus coal gasification, you're looking at about a gap of so what. Um, Coal gasification, you'd get about 20-ish kilos per of, of carbon dioxide per kilo of hydrogen produced. Uh, methane reforming, you get about 8.8, 8.9, let's say, 
uh, kilos of, of carbon dioxide per kilo of hydrogen. Um, and then when we talk about carbon capture, you know, you're typically looking at uh, kind of, you know, 60-ish percent for steam ref methane reforming. Um, so you're pulling that down to around, you know, maybe a little less than four. But that's the scale of uh, carbon emissions, right? Like those are huge numbers, though. I mean, those are those are absolutely huge numbers, aren't they, Patrick? I mean, just thinking about that for a second, you know, if you look at some of these um, forecasts in terms of, you know, the multi terawatt hours of of hydrogen, you know, any of that coming from coal. I mean, the carbon capture demands on that. I mean, just quite apart from, is it technically possible? I mean, actually finding the ability to store or to process that volume is just enormous, isn't it? Right. And, and, and this is, you know, like carbon capture and storage as a technology, you know, it's been talked about for, for a very long time. There are some projects that are, are kind of up and running um, at reasonable scale. Um, but but this, is the, this is the importance of it in a way, right? Like, because quantification of the amount of carbon these, these processes produce is, is often just lost on us until it comes to the moment when you try and try and actually actually capture it. Yeah, Patrick, you, you jumped ahead, my friend. I was going to circle things back and say we'll come back to the uh, the carbon capture side of things here shortly. He's too eager uh, a beaver. He wants well, to dive into it. Yeah, yeah, Patrick's always getting excited, you know? Uh, yeah, I know, right? No, uh, what, I wanted, what I wanted to quickly circle back to is something you said earlier on, Chris, which is uh, there's been no shortage of activity in the hydrogen space uh despite the current economic conditions. And I just wanted to ask you guys quickly to address from your standpoint, I mean, what do you think, why do you think that is? I mean, what is the, what insulates the hydrogen space uh, so far from a lot of the economic pressures that uh, a lot of other sectors are suffering from? I'd go with the fact that, you know, very simply, uh, folks who are looking at, the, you know, the next 15, 20 years, or, you know, even shorter, maybe next five years, right, are looking for investments where they see, you know, growth in the markets, even during difficult times, you're, you're looking for stuff that's going to be valuable going forward. And there's been a lot of speculation and a lot of uncertainty around, um, you know, oil and gas markets reasonably recently, um, and around the uh, longevity of the kind of disproportionate returns those sectors have seen. And, and also, you know, I, I think we kind of skirted over this a little bit when we were talking about news and announcements, but like there's an awful lot more uh, going on in terms of policy and, and, and kind of government engagement around hydrogen, um, hydrogen systems, um, whether it be mobility or whether it be gas conversion or whether it be any of the other use cases that we talk about. There's an awful lot more engagement in it. And as such... You know, it's a small enough sector with, uh, as, as we stand today, with a, a potentially very, very large upside um, and a, a lot of different applications. So, you know, I, I, I guess it's, it's one of those things that if you're optimistic about, you know, hydrogen in general, there's no reason not to be optimistic about it now when, uh, when we're on the cusp of potentially transitioning some of these things. I guess maybe I'd look at it slightly differently. I mean, so I guess there's a mixture of macro things that are driving it and then there's certain sectoral things that are driving it. So maybe starting with the macro, I mean, if you start with the basic premise that uh, there is a fairly widespread consensus in industry and among most sensible policymakers, and I don't include the US president in that because he is not a sensible man. Um, but if you take him out of the equation, you do have to sit back and go net zero by 2050 is an absolute minimum for industrialized nations. And the minute you have said net zero, 
that immediately means you have to answer a very quick and simple question, which is, if I am going to get to net zero, is there a way in which I can supply all elect- all energy needs today through electrification, right? It is a really basic question. And there are certain advocates who say, yes, you can. But overwhelmingly, the, the vast majority of people would argue it is impossible to transition the global energy system by 2050 to a net zero world without some kind of molecule-based energy carrier, right? Whether that's a fuel or a liquid, there is going to be the need for a molecule-based energy system and not just a electron-based one. So the minute you started with that at the macro level, everything falls under that because then immediately you're going, well, okay, what can I actually create and how do I create that? And one way of creating it is through bioenergy sources. And there are very clear caps on that. The European Commission put out a paper um, in April about the caps on potential biomass or bioenergy uh, and biogas uh, generation in Europe, whether that's from uh, waste streams or whether that's also from you know growing on land that perhaps isn't suitable for farming. Uh, there is a limit to how far that will get you. And there are still sort of sustainability questions around those numbers as well. So really, then you're left with the fact that there has to be a uh, chemical conversion process. And then that is where green hydrogen from electrolysis and renewable power enters. So those two macro things basically set every single person's head on. There has to be a piece of the decarbonization puzzle that is green hydrogen. So if you know that at the macro level, you need that, the question is simply when and how. And then that's where the sectoral themes start to come in. So a lot of gas grid operators, for example, are really hot on this right now because it's an existential question. You know, the electricity sector is very much going after them and trying to say we can electrify everything. You know, all new homes should be all electric or businesses should be converting to electric. They've had this battle in California and in San Francisco. They've started having this battle in places like Vancouver. It's a big battle that's being happen- that's happening in the UK with the argument of heat pumps versus uh, gas grid connections. And so the gas industry at a central level is facing an existential crisis. And so hydrogen really is their lifeline to keep that business going. Um, but beyond that, you also have all these oil and gas majors whose bread and butter is dealing with gas and chemicals and molecules. They're not electron companies. And while some have done a very good you know, a job of sort of repurposing themselves as renewable power companies, they can't all do that. So, you know, and then there are other sets to play in. But I think at a high level, when you combine those macro themes and those sectoral drivers, it becomes inevitable that there is going to be a push on hydrogen and green hydrogen and that that is going to be somewhat agnostic on what is going on right now for the next six months, maybe even next 18 months. Got it. Well, guys, I think this is, uh, <laughs> is now a good time. Silent. <laughs> There's no disagreement. There's no, like, commentary or uh, pushback. <laughs> What I'm concerned, no, 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 no. What I, this is Lots perfect, of judgment, guys. though. Is what's happening here is I'm concerned that if I give you guys too much, uh, too much rope to work with, you're gonna, you're gonna keep going over into our listener questions, uh-huh. and then, you know, the whole second segment is completely screwed, guys. Then it's not gonna work. So we gotta, we gotta consider, consider okay. what we're doing here, right? We're so terrible, Chris. Andrew, Andrew has this plan that he never told us about, so. I've got plans, guys. I, I, I think these things through. A strategic mind, right? <laughs> Just like the American president. Mr. Strategy, you're up. All over to you. <laughs> good, good. Well, so several of these questions, guys, I mean, we've, uh, we've, <laughs> we've occasionally answered questions in previous episodes, but we have a backlog of questions starting from October 22nd. 
2019, right? So uh, in certain cases, I'm going to combine a couple and we'll start with one from Phil Weigel uh, from October of 2019. We're going to combine his with another question from Gerben Bockley. Uh, and they basically are asking, right? So Phil is asking about a article that he read in which uh, a researcher talks about combining hydrogen and CO2 in order to use this in conventional diesel motors uh, in the fuel. And then Germond is asking about basically uh, a longer form question about what happens to the carbon after you capture it using CCS from you know coal or SMR or uh, other production systems. So do either of you guys want to take a crack at that? Sure, why not? Um... So can we hypothetically reconstitute carbon dioxide and hydrogen into, into hydrocarbons? Yes. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of work in the space, a lot of interest in it. Um, and, you know, uh, like those, those reactions, you know, have been kind of known, you know, going back a long number of years. So yeah, yes, it is possible. Uh, depending on what it is, obviously there's, there's different kind of challenges or, or different kind of chains you're trying to create. Right. So, so you know, fundamentally, that is that is achievable. Um, in terms of what you do or how you use uh, kind of or what what you do with the carbon that you capture after you've you've installed your CCS uh, kind of resource, well, like you know, today a large portion of uh, carbon that's captured is is used in in what they refer to as enhanced oil recovery so they they pump carbon dioxide back down into into oil fields to Im improve the pressure to extract uh, extract oil so that's why you see an awful lot of ccs um kind of efforts attached to uh, to oil majors other other kind of uh, suggested uh, kind of applications are, you know, on the pure storage side, pumping it into salt caverns or uh, subterranean kind of uh, sealed spaces. Where where this actual space I think gets more more interesting is when we start talking about the utilization, which is uh, you know, as folks have said, you know, kind of diesel, or you know, for instance, other kind of hydrocarbons, or indeed. Um, you know, some of the more interesting kind of applications, I think, I think folks like Lanzatech uh, do a, a kind of a microbial or kind of deconstruction and they create things like plastics. Um, there's also, you, you know, kind of other kind of interesting kind of applications that start to emerge, you know, uh, carbonating soft drinks and other things, uh, you know, that's one of the, the applications that you hear use for um, in, uh, in, in kind of the direct air capture uh, technologies kind of uh, world, but but fundamentally, all of this comes back down to the purity of the streams. So depending on the the chemical construction of the the stream of the CO two that you're getting, the purity of that it'll change and limit the uses. So it's not as as simple as capturing the exhaust and turning it into something. There's there's a lot more that goes on. But yeah, fundamentally, you can you can use CO two for something, um, so long as uh, so long as you're actually doing something kind of that you have the proper chemical construction and process uh, set up for. Yeah. And it's worth bearing in mind here as well, that there are certain, you know, uh, the cleaning up piece is exactly right. You know, pure CO2 is actually a commodity, right? I mean, there's a story in the US at the moment, there's a shortage of CO2. The UK had shortages of CO2, I think, if not last summer, the summer before last. 
Um, so it is actually a widespread commodity and it actually does have a value. So it's not the CO2 in and itself. There isn't a market for it. It's to do with the purity of it. And uh, frequently when you're using or consuming a hydrocarbon like natural gas or uh, diesel or coal, there are impurities, especially things like sulfur, which are quite nasty, um, which and, and therein lies the big issue. Um, you know, it is it is a model that has been adopted in a couple of places. Uh, I know it exists in the UK. I imagine it must exist in other places in Europe and North America as well, likely Asia, where people configure CHP gas sites and they will filter the exhaust um, so they get a pure stream of carbon dioxide and then they'll actually pump that through greenhouses and then it will boost yields in greenhouses, things like tomatoes and stuff like that. So, you know, those sort of forms of carbon capture um, are relatively, you know, uncontroversial. They're quite well known and established. So the big question really here in the hydrogen side is that, you know, if you uh, if you think about carbon capture, one of the challenges that the industry has had is where do you capture the carbon? And in the earlier days, there was a thinking that you would just install carbon capture units on every single industrial site. And that was how you'd capture carbon. And it was realized quite quickly that that was prohibitive on a cost basis. And so therefore, the next question said, well, hang on, can we capture carbon in a large centralized place so that we don't have to spread those costs everywhere and so that we can handle the actual transportation and storage of the CO2? And this is what then led to all these discussions around blue hydrogen, right? Um, because then you have a really nice model, which is you have a hydrogen gas network. So it's all decarbonized the minute it enters the network and the minute it's consumed. But you're capturing all the carbon at a single point, which is why the hydrogen story. And I think this is a theme of the last 12 months has become really apparent. The hydrogen story has become a much bigger part of the global carbon capture narrative because it's something that the carbon capture industry has been able to put its hat on and say this is a tangible way that we move this forward and this is how we deal with some of the challenges of cost in deploying these systems widely um what the only problem is that this then feeds into a bigger issue which is what is a green gas um you know and and i say this is important because there are so many policy regulatory discussions that are happening in the uk and europe north america australia and other places where people are adamant and the public are adamant if it's a green gas it has to be renewable and so there's a concerted effort to fudge that term and refer to it as low carbon uh, fuels and in and then under that rubric institute blue hydrogen as part of that stream um, and so therefore allowing the oil and gas industry a way to basically get public sector or get consumers to swallow paying a premium for continuing to use fossil fuels but with a much higher capture rate um, so that's, I mean, that's the other piece of, of all of that sort of discussion I think that's worth mentioning. I think that's something that, you know, is relatively, is a trend we've definitely seen getting more and more apparent in the last few months. And we've got another question from Garmin, guys. Uh, and it says, I was wondering if you guys could talk about or have a guest on the podcast and discuss green ammonia, how it works, where it works best, and how you guys see its applications in the future. Are there any companies that are working with this that a normal guy can invest in and what companies would they be? First of all, I'm going to go and take, go ahead and take a crack at the first part of that. No, we will not have a guest on. We're going to answer it ourselves. Uh, and so I'm going to turn the next part of the question, the, the real part of the question over to you guys. I'm going to start with you, Chris, since you put it on Patrick on the last one. Seems fair. Um, yeah, look, there is, um, the, you know, green hydrogen is definitely a topic that's coming up more commonly. Um, you know, some of it is is more conventional. So some of it is existing ammonia manufacturers that are looking at ways to create new products, you know, green sustainable products. 
Um, and so we're working in that space. Um, so, you know, that Yara, for example, has worked with Angie on a green ammonia site in Australia. Um, there are a couple of other companies that are also working on green ammonia projects. So that's fairly conventional. But that, but there's also a number of new companies that are starting to come up and talk about uh, using hydrogen for energy sector applications. Um, so, again, the three that I can speak to sort of probably best. Um, so there's GenCell in Israel that does... Um, ammonia fuel cell systems um, that are relatively sort of widespread now in a number of developing countries, notably in Kenya. Um, but there are, you know, a few others as well. Uh, the two others that are really interesting in the UK, there's a new project developer called NAS Energy that's developing green ammonia sites in the UK. They're quite new. Um, so we'll wait and see what their projects look like, but they are working in that space. And then there's a company called Geopura um, in the UK, which um, does EV fast charging using um, fuel cell hydrogen uh, systems off uh, sort of in more remote areas that also have uh, green ammonia IP that they're working on. There are a number of outfits of those kinds of size that perhaps aren't very well known that are kind of out there um, that I suspect will become better known as they gain traction and as they have more opportunity to to talk about the project work that they're doing. Um, so there are a couple of them kind of out there. Um, you know, in, in terms of can a normal guy invest in these? Probably not. But I mean, watch this space, I guess, is the is the answer. I think there's so much money in public capital markets at the moment, as we saw with Nikola's realization that by, uh, you know, reverse listing into VTIC, uh, it was a really good way of them raising a ton of money from buoyant capital markets. I suspect that, you know, in the not too distant future, there will be a number of companies in the space that will have a go. Otherwise, you're stuck with the sort of ThyssenKrupp's or the um, man groups who have been developing sort of, you know, either turbine technologies or electrolyzers that convert straight into ammonia. But, you know, it's part of a broader industrial play rather than being a specific core company focus. Yeah, I think just to follow on, you know, there are an awful lot of pilot scale projects for, for green ammonia. I'm pretty sure that, that I can't think of a major ammonia producer who hasn't at least looked at or is in the process of developing a, a pilot or a, or at least a test case um, plant. I think I think the first thing to flag here, you know, contextually is is that ammonia is one of the the major kind of consumers of hydrogen in the market today. And as such, all we're really all we're really talking about here is the conversion of the source, right? So you're talking about moving from steam methane reforming to you know in most cases electrolysis based uh, hydrogen production. So, so in that sense, it's a natural market for trialing or, or kind of getting these things kind of set up and up to scale. Um, so, yeah, I, I'd expect, number one, that we'll see this a lot more, especially as electrolyzer costs come down and, and as we see greater renewable kind of penetration into grids and we see the electricity price coming down. I would say also that we're likely to see a lot more of the major industrial companies engaged in this space start to commit to larger facilities uh, around this. Uh, we have one, two more questions. Uh, the next one is from Jonas Bemetz. He says, after listening to the recent episode on Enaptor, I came across a Swiss podcast, competitors, not happy about that, but we'll move along, that presented a hydrogen fuel station network in Switzerland called HydroSpider. What I found most remarkable about the project is that hydrogen is produced locally from hydropower and the whole system is economically profitable without subsidies. 
would be great to hear more about the Hydra Spider project and on any differences on tax and apportionment on electricity issues in the UK, USA, Germany, et cetera. Uh, Chris, I'm going to throw that one over to you, but uh, I suspect, I uh, don't want to speak for you, but I suspect we don't want to dive too deep into differences on uh, tax and apportionment issues in the UK, US, and Germany, but I will leave that to your discretion. What do we know about the Hydra Spider project? Sure. Uh, okay. So trying to keep this somewhat high level. So at, at a high level, um, the Hydra Spider is a consortium of different businesses in Switzerland that are looking to provide green hydrogen for heavy goods vehicles. Um, I think the longer term objective is something like a thousand vehicles. Although, to be honest, these days saying a thousand vehicles seems to be just be a proxy for any press statement about hydrogen mobility. So it's a usually safe guess, even if it's not true. Um, uh, it's slightly in joke there. Um now, in, in the context of the Hydra Spider, what's interesting here is, and courtesy to Nigel Holmes, who's the head of the Scottish Hydrogen Association for the spot on this, um, the reason why the numbers stack up is to do with a very specific set of carbon and uh, air pollution taxes that exist in Switzerland uh, that actually have quite significant penalties imposed upon um, a number of the operators. And so Alpic, which is one of the companies that's leading the consortium, has said that it's because of that policy framework that the fact that green hydrogen then is a zero emission vehicle and it gives them the range and the refueling requirements they want, that they are therefore able to justify the investment, even though on a CapEx basis and on a um, direct comparison of diesel versus hydrogen fuel, it wouldn't necessarily stack up. So it's a good example of where policy is designed to capture the negative externalities of fossil fuels and to then balance the equation such that green renewable technologies like green hydrogen can enter the playing field. So that's kind of why that works. And it's quite important. I think it's interesting for people and policymakers looking at that. Um, but using hydrogen um, or generating hydrogen from hydropower is not particularly unique. Um, you know, if you talk to Kendra Goon from the Renewable Hydrogen Association, it, which is mostly in the Northwest US, but uh, expanding outwards, um, it's a huge issue at the moment for a lot of utilities in countries where they have quite significant hydro resources, but where they have to spill hydro. And in North America, that's been quite common because they've had much more significant snow melts um, over the winter times. And so they've ended up with quite large amounts of power that effectively is being lost and is not able to be monetized. So that's not only lost revenues for the utilities, but that's also potentially a wasted economic opportunity. So a number of states now, like Washington State, are looking at exactly this kind of proposition of green hydrogen co-located with hydropower. So it's nice to see it in Europe. It, I, it's certainly not the first and only place that's doing it. Uh, but the Hydra Spider, from a policy perspective, is a great success story of how hydrogen and other low carbon and zero carbon technologies may be able to break the stranglehold of fossil fuels in the transport sector. Gotcha. Guys, fun fact that I'm just realizing, uh, this is off topic, by the way, but fun fact that I'm just realizing with Squadcast, the new recording software, I can I can actually mute and unmute you guys from my end. So nice. I have a lot of creative control, I'm realizing. <laughs> yeah, pretty excited about that. We just know you're to blame, Andre. <laughs> what? When Patrick says something objectionable, which, by the way, is pretty frequent, we can now just start cutting him off. So, uh, But on that note, guys, the last question, uh, and this one, well, okay, I'll just ask the question and then we can make our remarks as needed after this. But this one is from uh, Frank Manis, and he asks, from a novice 
to energy point of view for anybody on the panel, but especially for Chris. So this is a targeted question, gentlemen. Do you think platinum is or will continue to be the primary metal used in general for hydrogen fuel cells slash hydrogen fuel cell electric vehicles? Uh, Patrick, do you want to weigh in on that? No? I think this is especially directed at Chris, so we should. <laughs> I just wanted to give you the chance to co-op. Uh, co I, I want to. I want to hear the, uh, the 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 man himself. Yeah, yeah, the man himself. Okay, well, in that case, I'll just mute you, Patrick, and uh, Chris, take it away. <laughs> oh, God, um, look, uh, platinum. So. Platinum is something that gets everyone very, very hung up in the hydrogen industry because it, it's often assumed that if you can cut hydrogen, then that's the quickest way to cut costs. But there's kind of several implicit assumptions in that. And one implicit assumption is that you're always talking about PEM technologies, right? Because you don't really, for alkaline electrolysis or for solid oxide fuel cells, platinum isn't really an issue. It's very much for PEM technology. So it's not every and all types of fuel cell systems that are relevant. And so really what this is coming up in the context of is PEM fuel cells in cars and for mobility applications, right? Um, and I think the numbers from the Platinum Council when I was talking to them in uh, it was October last year was something like an average um, catalytic converter needs 10 grams of platinum in a brand new uh, car that you go out and buy today. And a Toyota Mirai, I think, is about 30 grams of platinum, I believe. So, you know, it's about three times that at the moment. But the idea is that that will come down over time and get nearer to that sort of 10 grams. So it's it's meaningful, but it's not, you know, existential. Um, you know, I think almost every single month I seem to read some scientist or research institute has discovered how to avoid using platinum. I think, Patrick, correct me if I'm wrong, but DOE put out something this month, so May 2020, saying that they'd found a way to cut out platinum. So, yes, there are plenty of ways to get rid of it, but um, you know, is that really the be-all and end-all in terms of reducing costs and increasing scale? No, I don't think that right now is the priority. And frankly, of all the minerals that you could be using, at least platinum's fairly recyclable. I think it's got like an over 90% recyclability rate and the third of global platinum supply annually is recycled platinum. So compare that to lithium ion or compare that to cobalt. Um, I don't think it's a big issue for now, but that's just my view. Yeah, I think that's about right. Chris is in, entirely right in pointing to the fact that, you know, you, you could be forgiven for thinking this is a, you know, the number one barrier, right? Given given the amount of attention that is specifically kind of thrown at it. But yeah, there's an awful lot of people in an awful lot of labs across the world looking at kind of substituting platinum for, you know, other, other group metals or, you know, kind of just general substitution creation of different alloys with the idea of being reducing the cost. But as Chris rightly points out, you know, it's, it's a pretty small aspect of it. Um, and, you know, as the, the sector matures and as we get better at producing fuel cells, you know, those, those aspects of, of the, the sector are, are likely to be the things that reduce the cost probably more heavily than, than just substituting out platinum all on its own. It's, it's part of the, it's part of the, the likely uh, cost reduction profile that we're going to see. Excellent. All right, guys, that takes us through all of the questions we have on our list for this episode. So that means that it's now all back on the listeners to start submitting more questions and that, uh, you know, maybe, uh, maybe throwing some curveballs at you guys going forward. 
Andrew, I, I, doing what I know you love, which is uh, shamelessly taking ideas from other more established organizations, can I suggest that we repurpose the free electron bit at the end of the show and rephrase it as a free molecule and, uh, and wow. add our free molecule? Uh, not only do I love the idea, I'm very glad you suggested it. So let's run with that. Uh, Chris is the originator of the end. All credit due where credit is due. As the originator and and driving force behind Shameless free molecules, <laughs> do you have any free molecules for us this week? Um, yeah, I, I think I want to. My free molecule actually this week is I wanted to try and sort of tell a slightly more positive story from a book that I'm absolutely loving called. Uh, uh, Energy of Human History by Richard Rhodes. And if anyone is sitting in quarantine and loves, you know, short but just really fascinating histories, I thoroughly recommend it. The reason I wanted to just reference something from that, because I thought it was quite encouraging, is people talk about timescales and they talk about how it seems so impossible for things to dramatically change, especially the energy sector in any period of time. And there's just a, a very short section in this that I've been chewing over now for weeks trying to find some way of shoehorning it into a report submission or something but i just think is great and it's to do with the fact that after about three thousand people died over the space of four days in the 1950s in london from smog they passed the clean air act in 1956 in the uk and effectively in 10 years they reduced emissions by 80 percent closed down all solid fuels in the city transitioned coal gas away to natural gas and since then life expectancy and smog basically disappeared from london you know also life expectancy improved dramatically and smog disappeared from london in a space realistically of around 10 to 20 years so i just thought that was an incredible example of actually how when we really want to get our act together we can and i think given that the eu green new deal is going to be announced this week it's something that we should all be thinking about and pushing people to be bold and brave about so that's my free molecule I've got a free. I've got a free molecule for you guys. So they can be. Away. They can be anything. For instance, Patrick, I'll give you my free molecule. My hats off to the uh, state of California for, by law, making Elon Musk rename his child this week. Really? Uh, so what? They've, they've had to. These the state of California has laws about <laughs> how you can name your, your child. And uh, one of the laws is that the, the name can only contain the 26, uh, I guess they're called, the 26 letters of the, of the English alphabet uh, as recognized by the state of California. <laughs> so they had to change it. They had to change it from X ash A1-1-2 to X ash A-1-2. XII. So Roman numerals are acceptable. So uh, that's the new name. And uh, the dash, the dash is apparently allowed under state law. So my hat is off uh, to the state legislators of California for finally forcing the hand of Elon Musk. That's it. That's my free molecule. Over to you, Patrick. It's just the best. I mean, that's just amazing. Wow. Okay. Well, that was that was that was pretty free as molecules go. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's just way off topic. <laughs> well, how about how about this? Let's 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 kick closer to home of something interesting that's happened. And 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 when I say closer to home, I mean closer to your home, Chris. In that, uh, I'm not sure if you guys have seen or folks have seen, but um, 
you know, six uh, of Denmark's biggest companies teaming up to launch the world's largest green hydrogen projects and uh, basically uh, create a, a mechanism for uh, decarbonizing uh, shipping, trucking, aviation, and heavy industry. So that's Maersk, SAS, uh, uh, DSV, and uh, DF, DS, and DF. Uh, some of the Copenhagen airport and, and Orsted. Yeah, and that was, uh, and I think the piece about that as well that's definitely worth talking about because I think it's a great story, Patrick, is not only the scale, because I think it's about 1.3 gigawatt, isn't it, the plan they're looking at or something like that. But it's not just the scale, which is which is great. It's something we've talked about before, which is that they're actually using the green hydrogen to make green methanol. Guys? Awesome. Oh, okay, sorry, I thought you were... I thought you were still talking. <laughs> it was it was uncharacteristic. It was uncharacteristically brief, Chris. Patrick, you have to be prepared for follow up questions on your free molecule, man. It wasn't. It, it wasn't. It wasn't ex, uh, an expectation of questions or the lack thereof, so much as um, as as I expected Chris to not stop at at methanol and presumed he was still <laughs> talking while disconnected from our kind of audio. But yeah, look, like. Um, as far as I know, right, you know, they're talking about a, a few different fuels or, or fuel kind of options around, you know, kind of ammonia and biomethane and, and kind of whatnot, possibly some alcohol. Um, yeah, but this is this is huge. It's uh, it's it's going to use, I think it's around three ish gigawatts of, of wind. Um, and yeah, like this is this is a su substantial investment in uh, in in you know transitioning uh, a few sectors away from uh, from fossil fuels excellent excellent guys that was an excellent round of, of free molecules and the best part about it was it was unplanned so it's truly off the cuff that's the type of that's the type of uh, free moving original content that you get here at everything about hydrogen so you know stay tuned for more <laughs> there you go that does it for us today at Everything About Hydrogen. Thank you to Patrick and Chris, as always, for their unparalleled enthusiasm and hydrogen expertise, and for working so hard to make the podcast happen despite the difficulties of recording remotely these days. Also, we love to hear from our listeners here at Everything About Hydrogen. If you have any questions for us or our guests and would like to get in touch with us, please send us an email at podcasts at inspiration.com or find us on Twitter at About Hydrogen. Lastly, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you will join us again next time on Everything About Hydrogen. Hydrogen.